Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Number 483, number 483, Footsteps of Jesus, and would you please join us in standing as we worship together. Sweetly, Lord, have we heard thee calling, come follow me. And we see where the footprints falling lead us to thee. Footprints of Jesus that make the pathway glow. We will follow the steps of Jesus where'er they go. Though they lead o'er the cold, dark mountain, seeking his sheep, or alone by Siloam's fountain, helping the weak. Footprints of Jesus that make the pathway glow. We will follow the steps of Jesus where ere they go if they lead through the temple holy preaching the word or in homes of the poor and lowly serving the lord footprints of jesus that make the pathway glow we will follow the steps of Jesus where'er they go. Then at last when on high he sees us our journey done, we will rest where the steps of Jesus in at his throne. Footprints of Jesus that make the pathway glow. We will follow the steps of Jesus where'er they go. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3... Uh, this morning we're going to look specifically uh, at verses 10 and 11, but I'm going to 
begin reading at verse 1, and we will read through verse 18 of Romans chapter 3. There the Bible says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we come this morning mindful of the fact that we are creatures and that you are the creator, that we are limited in our wisdom, but you are omniscient. You are all-knowing. We are limited in power, but you are omnipotent. You are God, and you alone are worthy of worship. We thank you for the privilege of being gathered this morning as your church that we may assemble together to worship you. We're thankful that that which we have in common this morning is that we have all come under Christ, that we were under sin, but now we are under Christ. We are in him, under his grace, having been forgiven of our sins and his righteousness imputed to us our sins imputed to him. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray for understanding this morning as we look into it. We ask, O oh Lord, that you will open the eyes of our heart, give us wisdom and revelation and discernment. Father, we pray that in this time this morning, your will may be done, and Jesus Christ be magnified, because we ask in his name, Amen. Number 546, Love Lifted Me. Ah. 
was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else would help, love lifted me, love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else would help, love lifted me. All my heart to him I'll give, ever to him I'll cling. In his blessed presence live, ever his praises sing. Love so mighty and so true, merits my soul's best songs. Faithful loving service to, to him belongs. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else would help, love lifted me, love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else would help, love lifted me. Souls in danger, look above, Jesus completely saves. He will lift you by his love. Out of the angry lakes, he's the master of the sea, billows his will obey. He your savior wants to be, be safe today. Love lifted me, love lifted me, when nothing else would help. Love lifted me, love lifted me. Love lifted me when nothing else would help. Love lifted me. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Last week we talked a little at ver at about verses 9 through 11, where Paul says that all are under sin, under the dominion of sin, uh, without any righteousness. Nothing that men can do merits them favor with God. Furthermore, they are without spiritual understanding. For he says, no, not one understands. And he says that no one seeks for God. And I said that these verses form... Uh, the nucleus of what theologians call the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that every human being is as wicked as they can possibly be. It just simply means there is nothing in any human being that can please God, that they will not come to God unless He first regenerates them and draws them by an irresistible grace unto himself. We are, before our conversion, before our regeneration, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. Whenever we study passages like this, 
there are questions that inevitably arise that have to do with the matter of the human will and whether or not it's free. If you, uh, if you read uh, uh, much secular literature or watch movies, uh, you know that free will is the one doctrine that they all cling to uh, tenaciously. Uh, man has got to be free. So is man free? Does man have a free will? I would give a qualified yes, I suppose, depending on how you define that. A libertarian free will? No. Does, does man have the ability to choose God unaided by the Holy Spirit? No. He does not. And these verses make that very, very clear. If we are as desperately lost as Romans says that we are, then unaided by the Spirit of God, no one can come to God. No one can choose God or even believe on Jesus Christ and be saved unless God first makes that person alive and draws him or her to himself. Uh, we said when we looked at the Gospel of John a few years back, John chapter 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, born from above, you cannot see the kingdom. One of the great questions of, of, of theology and biblical interpretation is, do you believe and you're born again, or are you born again and believe? And the Bible unequivocally teaches that you have to be born again in order to believe. Unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom. It is God who graciously regenerates human beings so that they can see the kingdom, so that they can believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, it is through the preaching of the gospel. Never forget that the same God that ordained the end also ordained the means. Uh, he gets to do that because uh, he is God. But, having said that, that troubles many people. It doesn't seem to be consistent with what many believe about man's ability uh, to choose what he wants or to reject what he wants to reject. And what is more to some people, it seems inconsistent with the many free offers of the gospel that are found throughout Scripture. So what does it mean when the Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins? Does that mean that we are really unable to respond to God in any way, even when the gospel is proclaimed? Or do we still have at least that ability? If we can respond, what did Jesus mean when he said in John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or in John chapter 6 when he said, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him or granted it to him. The word translated draw 
in verse 44 is a Greek word that means to compel by irresistible superiority. So no one can come to God unless the Father irresistibly, by great superiority, draws him. That same word is used in James chapter 2, verse 6, and Acts chapter 16, verse 19. But on the other hand, if that is true, if we cannot respond, what is the meaning of those passages in which the gospel is offered to fallen men and women? For example, Jesus said, or God said through the prophet Isaiah, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. What about such invitations as that? And furthermore, how can a person be, fail, be uh, held responsible for failing to believe in Jesus if they're unable to believe in Jesus? The, these are questions that have perplexed Christians throughout the ages. Uh, and they come because of how Paul here sums up man's spiritual condition. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. And how we interpret these verses uh, will determine what we believe about man's ability or inability to respond to spiritual things. Uh, we might suspect that a question so important would have occupied a lot of church history and been discussed often, and that is indeed the case. In fact, one way of looking at this question, uh, aside from the Scriptures, is how has the debate uh, been handled by great theologians of the past, by great thinkers of the church. The first important debate in church history concerning the will was between a British monk by the name of Pelagius and a man who was a bishop in North Africa, in Hippo, named Augustine. It was toward the end of the 4th and the beginning of the 5th century. Pelagius argued for free will. Now to be fair to Pelagius, we don't have a great deal of his writings. What we have are writings of his followers. And Augustine responded to them. He did not want to deny the universality of sin, at least to begin with. He knew that the Bible said all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all of this, he wanted to remain orthodox. But Pelagius could not see how we could be held responsible for something if we didn't have free will in the matter. He said, ought implies ability. If God says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, man has the ability to do that. Uh, if there is an obligation to do something, he argued, then there must be the ability to do it. Pelagius believed that the will, rather than being bound by sin, is actually neutral. So that in any, in any given situation, man is free to choose either good or evil. It's, it's kind of like uh, I got up this morning and put on a, a 
yellow shirt, <clears throat> had to look, and uh, brown suit. I, I could have chosen a gray suit, uh, could have chosen a blue coat, could have chosen a gray vest. I didn't. I, I, my will was free in that. I could choose whatever I wanted to, whatever I wanted to do. Uh, and Pelagius says, in regards to spiritual things, it's the same thing. A man can choose whatever he wants. The implications of that were important in several different ways. For one thing, it led to a, a view of sin as only those deliberate and unrelated acts in which the will actually chooses to do evil. Thus, any necessary connection between the hereditary principle of sin uh, within the human race was forgotten. So, Pelagius argued that the sin of Adam affected no one but Adam. Now, we're going to get to Romans chapter 5, and you're going to see it's hard to maintain that position and really read Romans 5. And then he said that those that are born since Adam are born into the same condition at, that, that Adam was in before the fall. That is, they're in a position of neutrality. They, they are sinners because they choose to sin. <clears throat> now the Bible says we sin because we're sinners. Uh, and he even, or his followers at least, argued that human beings are able to, free, to live free from sin if they choose. Now, that's the basic view of most people today, including much of the evangelical church. But it is faulty because it limits the nature and the scope of sin. And it leads to a denial of the necessity for the unmerited grace of God in salvation. <clears throat> I mean, if I believe and then I'm born again, and so I follow God, then don't I have something to boast about? Aren't I in some way superior to those who do not believe? I mean, when I get to heaven, can't I say, look, you, you didn't get to heaven because you didn't believe. I believed, all right? That's what separates me from you. I believed. You did not. That is something that I have done that millions have not done. But if I am regenerated by a sovereign God and then believe, I have nothing to boast of. It's all by grace. It is by grace from start to finish. Nothing I've done. When I get to heaven, then I can say in my hand, no price I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I've been saved by grace through faith, and that was not of myself. It was a gift of God, not of works, and I have nothing to boast about. Uh, moreover, even when the gospel is preached, again, to a fallen sinner, he or she ultimately decides whether or not they will be saved. It is not, it is not that grace is not involved. It is involved, but... It is grace working with their own will, their own spirit that enables them to believe. Grace helps, but it's not all of grace. 
Early in his life, Augustine thought along those same lines. But when he became a Christian, and as he studied the Bible, he came to see that Pelagianism does not do justice either to the biblical doctrine of sin or the grace of God in salvation. Augustine saw that the Bible always speaks of sin as more than mere isolated individual acts. It speaks of an inherited depravity as a result of which it is not possible for people to stop sinning. Augustine had a phrase for man's basic human inability to stop sinning. Non pate, non peccare. Not able not to sin. That is, unaided by God, a person is just not able to stop sinning and choose God. Augustine said that man, having used, used his free will badly in the fall, lost both himself and his will. Uh, and he said that the will is, is free of righteousness, but enslaved to sin. It is free to turn from God, but it is not free to turn to God. And as far as grace is concerned... Augustine said that apart from grace, no one could possibly be saved. And it was grace from beginning to end, not just prevenient grace or partial grace to which the sinner adds his or her efforts. Otherwise, salvation would not be entirely of God, and God's honor and glory is diminished, and human beings would be able to boast in heaven. Because they did something other people didn't do. And any view that leads to such a consequence has to be wrong. For God has said, "Is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Well, Augustine won the day. The church supported him. And Pelagius has been condemned by more church councils than any man in the history of the church. Sometimes wrongly, as a matter of fact, you know, they just got in there and condemned Pelagius again. But anyway, Augustine followed a biblical view. Pelagius did not. And at the time of the Reformation, this battle erupted again between a German monk by the name of Martin Luther and a Dutch humanist, Erasmus of Rotterdam. And then between Jacob Arminius and the followers of John Calvin. The most interesting debate by far was that between Luther and Erasmus. Erasmus, in the beginning, was sympathetic to the Reformation because he saw that the church desperately needed to be reformed. But he didn't have the spiritual underpinnings that Luther had, and eventually uh, he was prevailed upon to challenge Luther. And Erasmus chose to write on the freedom of the will. And he wrote in much the same way that Pelagius did. But he didn't think it was that important. And he uh, asked or kind of counseled Luther, uh, moderation would be wise and not to, you know, not to go too far on this thing of the will. Martin Luther was not a man given to a lot of moderation, however, and he did not approach the subject with moderation, but with a zeal 
that was uh, evident. Luther viewed it as an issue upon which the very truth of God depended. He wrote to the Dutch humanist and commended him because he said, you alone have recognized this is the key issue. Everything hangs here as to whether or not salvation is of grace or it is of works and grace. So Luther wrote a book. He considered it the best one he ever wrote. He named it The Bondage of the Will. And what Luther affirmed was that in the specific area of an individual's choice of God or failure to choose God, the will is impotent. Again, you can choose a red tie or a gray tie. You can choose a red dress or a black dress. You're free to do that. You're free to either eat green peas or banana pudding, you know. You're free. But as far as choosing God, the will is bound. It is in bondage to sin. Luther said we are wholly given over to sin. And so our only proper role is to humbly acknowledge our sins, confess our blindness, and admit that we can do no more to choose God by our enslaved wills than that we can please Him by our moral acts. All we can do is call on God for mercy, knowing that even as we seek Him, He must be willing to regenerate us, to convict us of sin. Perhaps the clearest writing outside of Holy Scripture in the history of the church was done by the brilliant American theologian Jonathan Edwards. And if you... You first look at Edward's writing, you would think that he opposed Luther and Augustine. Um, because the title of Edward's treatise is A Careful and Strict Inquiry into the Prevailing Notions of the Freedom of the Will. Now, it doesn't say that, Luther, that Edwards is going to uh, assert the freedom of the will, it's just he's going to look into it. He's going to do a strict inquiry. In the end, Edwards came out on the same side as Luther and Augustine and all of the great biblical theologians before him. But he made some very important contributions to our understanding of Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. For one thing, Edwards defined the will. Amazingly, no one had ever done that up to that point in time. Everyone had operated on the assumption that everybody knows what the will is. Do you? If you were asked to define the will, how would you do it? Most of us say, well, it's, it's, a, it's the mind. It, it, it's the mechanism in us that makes choices. Edwards saw that that was not correct. Instead, Edwards defined the will as that by which the mind chooses anything. Now that may not seem like a major difference, but it is. It means, according to Edwards, that what we choose is not determined by the will itself, as if that were an entity unto itself, but by the mind. Which means our choices are determined by what we think is the most desirable course of action at the time. You see where he's going? The, 
The will is that by which the mind chooses anything. We make our choices because we think that's the most desirable course of action. If you were to choose contrary to what you think is the most desirable course of action, we have a word for that. Insane. <laughs> so, so he made that very important distinction. His second important contribution was the treatment of what he termed motives. Why does the mind choose one thing over another? And he answered, the mind chooses because of motives. That is, the mind is not neutral. It thinks that some things are better than other things. And because it thinks that way, it always chooses the better things. And again, if a person thought one course of action was better than another, and yet he chose the, the less desirable alternative, he would be acting irrationally against his own interest. So, does that mean that the will is bound? No, it means actually the will is free. It is always free to choose what the mind thinks is best. But what does the mind think is best? There's where we get to the heart of the problem as it involves choosing God. Remember, our scripture says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. We are all under the domination of sin. So unaided by the Holy Spirit, will the carnal mind ever think that it is best to choose God? No. Not ever. Not ever. It will never see that as the best alternative. When confronted with God, the mind of a sinner never thinks the way of God is the best way to go. The will is free to choose God. There's nothing stopping it. But the, the mind does not regard submission to God as something that is desirable. Submission to God is not ever desirable to the lost mind, to the natural man. It turns from God. As we, we saw in Romans chapter 1, the mind does not want God to be sovereign. It does not consider the righteousness of God the way to personal fulfillment or happiness. It does not want its true sinful nature exposed. The mind is wrong in its judgments, of course. The way it chooses is actually the way of alienation and misery, the end of which is death. But human beings think sin to be the best way. And therefore, unless God changes how we think, which he does by the miracle of the new birth, our mind always tells us to turn away from God. It is only when we experience the new birth that we see the kingdom, that Christ died for our sins, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, and that that is the way of life. That that is the way of truth. That that is the way of peace and of righteousness. That that is the way that we may avoid eternal wrath and the condemnation of God. But we never see that apart from regeneration and the irresistible grace of God. Now the third great contribution 
that Edwards made concerning the freedom of the will was understanding why the will never chooses God, although it is free. And that concerns the matter of responsibility, the matter that troubled Pelagius so profoundly. Edwards here distinguished by what he called natural inability and moral inability. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce gives, I think, a a great illustration here. He says, uh, there are animals that eat nothing but meat. They are called carnivores, from carnus, which means meat. And there are other animals that are herbivores. They eat nothing but, uh, but plants, vegetation. So imagine that you capture a carnivore, a lion, and you put him in a cage, and the lion gets hungry. And so you take and you shovel oats into his cage. Will the lion eat the oats? No. He'll starve first. Why? It's not in his nature to eat oats. He's hungry. The oats are there. There's nothing physically stopping him from eating the oats. He has the ability to eat them. He just hates them. He's not going to eat them. I cannot eat food, the lion would say, if he could speak. I only eat meat. I don't eat this kind of food. Now, think of the verse that says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Or the verse that says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If a man eats of this bread, he will live forever. Will a sinful man or woman not taste and see that the Lord is good? Will they feed upon Jesus, who is the living bread? No. Why? Because they hate such food. They're physically able, intellectually capable of believing, but they have a moral inability. They will not. They refuse. The sinner will not come to Christ because he does not want to come to Christ. Uh, not because he can't come physically. Uh, Someone says, well, doesn't the Bible say that anyone who wants to come to Christ can come? Yes, yes. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will not cast him away. The problem is man in his fallen state does not want to come. He simply doesn't want to. He has to be made to want to. How? By the new birth and by the gift of grace and of faith. Anyone who wants to come to Christ may come. Anybody on the planet who wants to come to Jesus, come to Jesus. All I'm saying is the Bible teaches that only by the grace of God will a man want to come. Apart from grace, he'll never want to. No one wills to come unless the Holy Spirit works in his heart, a regenerative work that makes the cross of Christ, the gospel, irresistible. He cannot but come. He 
has to come. Why? Because he wants to. He wants to come. It is attractive to him. Before his spiritually blind eyes are open, it is not attractive. That's the meaning of Romans 10 and 11. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Why do they not seek for God? They don't want to. Why do they not understand spiritual things? They don't want to. Apart from new birth, they'll never want to. If you this morning are one who has come to Christ and you desire spiritual things and you want to know God better, it is because God has given you that ability. Because on your own, you would never, ever come to God. Now you tell me, which grace is more amazing? That I believed, that I looked at the gospel, I, I took my Bible, I looked at it, I said, this is reasonable, I think I can do that, that's what I'm going to do. And then aided by grace, I was born again because I believed. Or, I did not want to come to God. I didn't understand spiritual things. I was a hater of God. When God, when God reached down and regenerated my heart, made me a new creature so that I could see the kingdom and see that Christ died for my sins and was buried and rose again the third day. And because God had done a good work in me, I believed. Which gives more glory to God? Uh, for me, there's no question about it. These truths have been lost today by much of the Christian church. And even those who see them think, well, we probably shouldn't be teaching that kind of thing. I mean, after all, don't we destroy an incentive for evangelism? No, because again, the same God that ordained the end ordained the means. It was Jesus who said, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It was also Jesus who said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. He said both things. It is the means of God regenerating people and bringing them into the kingdom is the proclamation of the gospel. How does that work? I don't have the first clue. All I know is the more that I proclaim the gospel, the more people seem to get saved. It's not my job to know how it works. It's not my job to do God's job. It's my job to do my job. And that is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. As a matter of fact, it's a great incentive for me to do evangelism because I know that God has chosen some. God will work in hearts. He will regenerate. And people will believe. What about, uh, should you ever tell a sinner that they can't respond unless God enables them? Sure. Because only when they feel so miserable they can't do anything else. Will they understand that it is all of grace? Now, absolutely essential, God's 
grace is. If we're hanging on some confidence in our own ability to do things, no matter how small, we're never going to seriously worry about our condition. No sense of urgency. Life's long. A lot of time to believe later. At least people are are willing to take a chance there. But if we truly believe we are dead in trespasses and sins, and that it involves our total being, and that apart from the unmerited favor of God we cannot be saved, that's where God wants us. There's where the gospel becomes great hope. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It is your task to take the gospel to a world that is lost and dying or is dead. They're dying physically. They're already dead spiritually. And by that gospel, God will bring his elect into his kingdom. But it is all of grace from start to finish. Let's pray. Our Father and our God.